0: Open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. The divine covenants. God is divine. And so they are the covenants of God. And they are spoken of throughout the whole Bible. There's about 300 uses of the word, but you do not need the word. If you need the word to study the Bible, you're not a Bible student. You're playing games with the Bible. For instance, the Bible says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Is that a promise? It doesn't say it's a promise. It just says it's a saying. Is it a promise? Because God said that he was going to do something, and so we know that is a promise. We don't need the word. And we don't need the word covenant every time there's a covenant in place. A covenant is a formal, contractual, compact, or agreement that a person's going to do such and such, or he is expecting such and such from another covenanting party about benefits that are going to be conveyed. It's just a wonderful formal title, word, describing commitments, describing contracts, describing compacts, describing agreement and promises. Covenant and promise are very similar in the Bible. Did you notice in Ephesians chapter 2, they were called covenants of promise because covenants equal promise, like I sent you last night in the preparatory email. The material universe, planet Earth, Pluto, the stars and the sun, is a stage on which an incredible drama of God's grace, wrath, and wisdom play out over time in his dealings with angels and men through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do not see... God's drama in every part of life, you miss his glory and his fabulous design of things. If you do not grasp this, that it is God's drama, then your place in the universe, your place in the universe becomes clouded or confounded. Covenants are God's contracts to men or God's contracts with men for life, salvation, worship, and other things. Covenant theology, if we were in seminary, you would embrace the term, the phrase, covenant theology is a good view of God, the Bible, and salvation when it is perfectly divorced from all Presbyterian heresies. It is a grand perspective of the drama of the universe, covenant theology covenant theology, and I'll be very simple and nearly silly with Presbyterians, covenant theology to a Presbyterian is, the new covenant is highly correlated with the old covenant, and since the old covenant had circumcision, the new covenant has baptism, and since circumcision made you a participant in the old covenant, baptism makes you a participant in the new covenant, Therefore, we baptize our babies and bring them into the new covenant. And though we hate that doctrine of baptismal regeneration of the Catholics, we do affirm that a sacrament is a sign and a seal of God's grace and mercy. And once baptized during their lifetime, they shall be brought into the covenant because it is more than just symbolic and it is more than just spiritual. It is real. That's what they say. You can find it in your Trinity hymnal at your seat of what Presbyterians believe about the covenant. And we care about the Son of God in our covenant more than us baptizing our children, especially in ways foreign to the Bible. God's covenants govern the things you can see and the things you cannot see. And the whole universe is settled, signed, and delivered by the great covenant promises of Almighty God. There is nothing at stake except our own obedience to that covenant and our praise to God of the covenants. Look at Genesis chapter 1. Now, I don't need to get past word four, and I know there's a covenant involved, and more than one covenant involved. In the beginning, God. God has never done anything that he didn't work out in his eternal counsel previous to it. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. So all I need is the first four words, and I'm content. But for those of you that don't see it quite that clearly, or don't get excited about four mere words of a verse, I'm going to read four verses for you. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. That is a covenant. The words, when they come from God, are a confirmation of a covenant. Let there be light. That means there will be light, and light exists by the covenant promise and the covenant commitment of Almighty God. Now you say to me, I'm still in the dark. Can you prove to me that it's a covenant? Thank you for asking. Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah chapter 33. I know that you may say to me, Pastor, we're used to this. Every subject you take up, you seek to make the most important subject you've preached thus far. And maybe that you'll ever preach again. Okay, okay. As long as I can get your attention that way, I will use it. I do want to get your attention about the covenants. They're special. They're fabulous. We depend on them for life. We depend on them for the sun tomorrow as Charlie prayed. We depend on them for eternal life. We can go through the curtain of death knowing that there is a covenant in place for the other side of that curtain. And it's sure. Jeremiah 33 and verse 20. Thus saith the Lord, if ye can break my covenant of the day and my covenant of the night, that there should not be day and night in their season. Amen. See, it's called a covenant. What you read, what I read to you in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, about let there be light, and let the light be called day, and let the darkness be called night, that day and night, and the evening and the morning, where the first day is a covenant. Right. And so I want, by this series, however long it takes, to get you attuned mentally to be looking for the covenant everywhere. I had great pleasure writing you yesterday, falling leaves imply a covenant. Why do they die and fall off that tree? Because of a covenant made with Adam and the effect of Adam's disobedience in that covenant. Before you can get past the opening verses of the Bible, you meet a covenant that God argues from. Now I read to you verse 20. Verse 20 begins with an if. If ye can break my covenant of the day and the night. If ye can break my covenant of Genesis 1, 1-4, verse 21, then may also my covenant with David my servant, that he should not have a son to reign upon his throne, and with the Levites, the priests, my ministers. Who is the son of David, the that should reign on His throne, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who are the Levites? You and I are the Levites. The priests, kings and priests of Almighty God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so he argues from it. So when you get up in the morning and the sun comes up, it should be more than, oh, a nice day. (laughs) That's that's okay. And get out there in it and let it embrace you. And thank the Lord for that S-U-N sun. But then remember, You can't stop it. It's 93 million miles away. It's warm. Anything would melt even getting close to it. Thank the Lord that his son, S-O-N, is as sure as that S-U-N son. And see it all fit together. This is my desire for the church. I used a single word with an exclamation point in the preparatory email last night. It was, help! Because it's a huge study. And your pastor, if he wants to keep it manageable, has been a bad boy. And the study of this subject brings back memories from many decades ago. When I first encountered some of these covenants and saw the glory of the everlasting covenant, 43 or... 45 years ago, and I thank God for that, but it's brought back all the pleasure of studying it, and so the outline is going to be huge, but I hope the sermons can be manageable so that right down to our youth, you'll understand that everything is operating by a commitment, a formal, official commitment of God to do certain things and not to do certain things for our benefit. The goal is a simple study. Without discipline or limits, the study of the covenants could cover the whole Bible. Did you see how I just showed you that? Now you know I could go to the last chapter, and when it says, come quickly, Lord Jesus, is that part of the covenant? Was that second coming of Jesus Christ determined before the world began? Absolutely. The whole Bible. My Bible says it's the old covenant and the new covenant. It calls itself two covenants. And there's more covenants than just those two, but I want you to see how pervasive it is and I want you to be excited about it from every part of of life. Let's get a fact down again. There's only one way to be saved. Now, I said this very clearly last time, two weeks ago. There's been an interruption for Deuteronomy 32. There's only one way to be saved in any dispensation, and that way to be saved is God's unconditional grace through Christ Jesus our Lord. Unconditional eternal life is true by seven proofs, regardless of any dispensation. There's not a different way for the patriarchs to be saved, for people under Moses' law to be saved, for the New Testament, the tribulation that doesn't exist, or the millennium that doesn't exist. And that's how they come up with at least five different ways of being saved. Now, Peter Ruckman came up with a whole lot more than five, and we'll just leave him alone. He was really messed up. You know, sometimes God can raise up a man that'll have a great voice for the King James Bible. And Peter Ruckman had a big, loud, booming, ridiculing voice for the King James Bible. But when it came to salvation and other subjects, the Lord left him completely. Right. And so I just give him to you as an example of very many ideas of salvation under different periods of time in the history of the world. The covenants are at least seven. Now, the the covenants can be, let me back up, the attributes of God. When I preached to you on the attributes of God, I told you they could be divided up and categorized in a variety of ways, really depending on each man's conscience and how the Lord leads him. And so we did it in a certain way of four categories of the attributes of God, and I believe God was with us in that matter and made it very beautiful and very powerful about the attributes of God. The same thing when it comes to the covenants. Now here's why I'm going to give you a number seven to help your memory bring up seven to memory. There's the everlasting covenant underneath. In its administration to the church, it's the old covenant and the new covenant. So we've got three. And they are distinct. The new covenant is how we worship God with more light and understanding of the underlying everlasting covenant. The old people in the Old Testament hardly had any understanding of it. So there's three. And then there's four modest-sized ones, or intermediate-sized covenants. The covenant of Adam, the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. And when you think about those four, those are I called them intermediate, but they're pretty big. And they serve the everlasting covenant. The Adamic covenant, the covenant God made with Adam about what would happen if he ate the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then the Noahic covenant, there's, that, there's two parts of it. And I had you read about it last night, and my better sense tells me we won't get to it today, though I want to get to it today. Then there's the Abrahamic covenant, and we're marching through time. The 6,000-year history of the world can be pointed out by these big epics. E-P-O-C-H-S, these periods of time where there are covenants made with men. Right. Then there's the Abrahamic, in thee and thy seed will all the nations of the earth be blessed. And we know who that seed is, but they weren't so sure of it, Abraham was, but not others. And then the Davidic covenant, that I, I will have your son sit on my throne forever. And when you think about it, is the Abrahamic covenant mentioned a few times in the Bible? Old and New Testament, yes. Davidic, Old and New Testament, pretty large. Noahic, be careful. Oh yes, both covenants. I mean, both of his covenants and Noah are mentioned in the Old and New Testament. And of course, the Apostle Paul argues from the Adamic covenant in Romans chapter 5 where he taught as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, that one for the many was with Adam. And it was in time. And it was necessary for the overall purpose of the under, for the everlasting covenant because God had to put us in a position of sin. He didn't make us sin. He's not the author of sin, but he arranged for that covenant with Adam that Adam violated that made us, legal, made us sinners several ways. And then he delivered us from that by the second Adam that he calls the second Adam. So he's bringing into play two covenants, a covenant with Adam, a covenant with Christ. Oh, then there are many covenants with individuals, families, nations, churches, kingdoms. You know this covenant with the day and the night. We could call it part of the creation covenant, but it's called a covenant in the Bible. So you could the covenant with Phinehas, the covenant with Levi, the covenant of salt. You can just start multiplying this thing, and it gets huge. So I gave you seven, and I think that's a good place to start. And before I finish, I will go into the others. Briefly. But the seven, I hope, will just give you something to... I got them all. I got them. Because that's what I want for you. I want you to have them in your mind and in your heart. Look at Acts chapter 15. There's a number of verses on this particular point that I could show you. Acts chapter 15. But the point is this. There is only one way to be saved. There is only one way to be delivered from hell. And it's just punishment, eternal punishment and torment for our sins into heaven and our eternal inheritance with Almighty God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. There's only one way, and that's by the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. At the great council of Jerusalem, all the apostles and elders are gathered together and they are discussing an issue because some converted Pharisees are saying that the law of Moses needed to be kept along with faith in Christ in order to be saved. And now here's what Peter has to say about that. Acts 15 and verse 10. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, meaning the Gentiles, meaning you and me, that we've got to keep the law of Moses? We've got to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be saved. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? It never worked. The old covenant never worked. Here's an inspired apostle saying it didn't help us and it didn't help our fathers. But that first covenant didn't work. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. And the order of words here is is incredibly beautiful. That the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to save the Gentiles and we're going to trust that we're going to be saved the same way. (laughs) Oh, that's sweet. Yes, there's only one way of salvation. So many more verses, of course, could be mentioned on that particular point. The other covenants other than this, this everlasting covenant that is under... The everlasting covenant was made between the persons of the Godhead before the creation of the world. And it runs into eternity. Right. It's the forever covenant of why God created and why we exist and why He had an incarnate Son and why He did everything that He's done that we're able to see and to read about in the Bible. Is for this everlasting covenant. The other covenants reflect the degree of revelation of this everlasting covenant, or the administration of worship. How does God want to be worshipped for a period of time? He'll have a covenant dictating it. And he has a covenant dictating us. What's it called? The New Testament. And what do the Jews have? The Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. You have made and you appreciate covenants. Charlie, I heard you say that. They provide security for us and they enforce promises. The problem is, we don't always keep ours. We can let details slip in the covenants we make rather easily, and God never loses a single detail. And He loves to say that He is immutable. And so that when He says a covenant, and just makes a promise, it is immutable. Immutable means it cannot be changed. It never will be changed. And then He swears with an oath. Over and over He swore. Not just once, not just twice. Several of the covenants I gave you, he swore in. So that he could tell us, I gave you two immutable things. So that you can really trust my covenant and use it as an anchor, a rock for your soul. So that you can have hope. When you go through the curtain of death, when you're living in life, you can have hope for your soul because by two immutable things in which God cannot lie. He has promised these things. We find confidence and pleasure in marital covenants when we get married. I want you to love covenants. They're binding formal contracts of promises and duties for the peace of your soul. The God of these covenants should be fully known to appreciate him binding himself. And this is how he got me on this subject. I told you about it briefly. I'm not going to mention it again, except to say that when you think about how great God is in the Bible, the infinite Jehovah of the Bible, not the God that is preached from most pulpits today, but the God of the Bible, the Lord Jehovah, when you think about him and all of his attributes and how he hates all workers of iniquity and how he is perfectly happy in himself in eternity and how he is absolutely sovereign over all his creatures and owes nothing to any of them and how he made all rational creatures for his pleasure and, yea, even for his judgment... And how he does not need you, you cannot add to or take away from him that he's the potter and you are the clay, that he charged his highest creatures, higher than you, with faults in heaven and sentenced them to eternal torment, and he does his will without answering for it. And when I think of all those aspects of God, and that he entered into a binding covenant for me, it's overwhelming. Amen. Yes. And he wants it to be overwhelming. It's, it's a great part of the drama for us to praise his great and glorious name. Amen. That he would stoop to us and make a covenant. For, he made a covenant with the fallen angels as well. He has reserved them in chains unto everlasting torture and torment in the lake of fire. The lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. That's Jude, then Second Peter, then Matthew, what I just said to you. The God of these covenants should be fully known to appreciate him binding himself for us. If you wrongly confuse or mix these covenants, this is from two weeks ago, I'm going to quickly go through it, heresy results and your worship becomes unacceptable. When God met with the woman of Samaria, he explained your worship in Samaria is wrong and the Jews' worship is wrong because they've got covenants mixed up. God expects worship in spirit and in truth. You've got to have the truth of the covenants for your worship to be acceptable to God. Catholics have robed priests, altars, gaudy buildings, incense, chrism, sprinkling of water, organs, and so forth, all from the Old Testament. They've got their covenants mixed up. Dispensationalism, or Zionism, which I prefer calling it, confounds or mixes covenants for Jewish fables. Pre- and post-millennialism are wrong by misapplying covenant promises made to Israel to some future age of the church on earth. Presbyterians' baptism mode, sprinkling, subject, infants, and covenant salvation are only in the Old Testament, and none of them apply to Presbyterian baptism anyway. But that's where they get them from, from the wrong covenant. Sabbatarians like the Seventh-day Adventists take the day of worship and dietary laws of the Old Covenant. That's why I tell them, I'll help you anytime you want to to become a New Testament Christian. The Reformed denominations and some Reformed Baptists make Sunday the Sabbath. Hello? The Sabbath is an Old Testament concept. Sunday is not a New Testament Sabbath. How are you folks going to get home? If it's a Sabbath, you can't do any work. You can't travel. What are you going to eat? If you didn't fix it yesterday, it doesn't count. Just forget it. Sunday's not a New Testament Sabbath. The worldwide Church of God, Herbert W. Armstrong, tried to bring back all the sacrifice and feasts of the Old Testament. Why do Christians use musical instruments? Because of the Old Testament, not the New Testament. Good men claim that Old Testament shadows or have light, truth, or value for us. Let's use the real thing of the New Testament. Amen. America's Middle East foreign policy, America's Middle East foreign policy, has been very influenced by covenant error, because right. Right. it's based on the old covenant that the Jews were a special people as a nation. Now it's a holy nation. We're part of the holy nation as Gentiles. And Gentiles make up 99.9% of it. Fact. Another fact. God doesn't change, but his revealed form of worship may and has changed. So remember that. Yeah. Circumcision was required for 2,000 2, years and then totally discarded as worthless. Right. The earth is 6,000 years old. For 2,000 years, no one circumcised. For 2,000 years, the Jews circumcised. And for the last 2,000 years, it doesn't matter. God doesn't care. And Paul blew it out by not circumcising Titus in Galatians chapter 2. Animal sacrifices were observed for 4,000 years and then totally discarded as profane and worthless, so inferior to the Lord Jesus Christ. God has many covenants with men, some in writing and some revealed in writing. Remember the Ten Commandments were in writing by the finger of God. Now that was a written covenant where God wrote with His finger in tables of stone, but he's got a covenant that is better than that one right. by any measure. And you should be holding it right now. You should be holding it in the internal, ca- internal cavity of your body by using the word heart. Because right. God has written by his spirit on the fleshy tables of our heart Amen. and changed, uh, written his law in there, written his love for us in there, sent his Holy Spirit in there that sheds abroad the love of God in our heart. Amen. That's a tremendous improvement. That's why I write many, and I write some of you, Brother, will you walk with God today and delight in Him and be a living epistle of the Lord Jesus Christ, known and read of all men? Because 2 Corinthians 3 says that writing inside changes a person's life, and they can be known and read of all men, that we are living epistles of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I've said to you, you may be the only Bible some people ever read. He takes all of his covenants very seriously. Can you find the little book of Amos in the Old Testament? I'm there. Um, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Let's go to Amos chapter 3 and verse 2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. What C word comes to your mind when I read that to you? You only have I known of all the families of the earth, a covenant. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Oh, see, there's a good and a bad side to covenants. We thank God for all the promises of the covenants, but he says, To whom much is given shall much be required, and since I've only known you and only made a covenant with you out of all the nations of the earth, I'm going to have to chasten you and punish you for your sins because you should know better, and you should want to please me more, and we should. So Jesus would pick up the same argument and say what I've already quoted, To him, to whom much is given, much shall be required. Look at, can you flip all the way back to Leviticus 26? I know the distance doesn't matter that much in speed, but Leviticus chapter 26, I just want to show you that these are just a few of many about violating covenants. When God promises us certain things, He may ask for something in return from us. We should want to give it to Him, right. and we should want to give it to Him with zeal. Leviticus chapter 26. In verse 25, I just find this interesting language. Leviticus 26 is the the blessings and curses offered to Israel by Moses. Verse 25, And I will bring a sword upon you that shall avenge the quarrel of my covenant. The quarrel of my covenant. And when ye are gathered together within your cities, I will send a pestilence among you, and ye shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. Now that's a lot of bad stuff happening in verse 25. And it's because of the quarrel of the covenant. So God made a covenant with them, and he has a quarrel. You haven't kept your part of the bargain. I met you at Mount Sinai. I asked you to do a few things toward me. I asked you to keep the Sabbath day holy, and you haven't done it. I have a quarrel. And all it's going to do is cost you a sword, vengeance, pestilence, and in the hand of your enemy. We have a New Testament covenant. Let's give him all his due. Do you remember how Paul would reason in the book of Hebrews four times? If violating the Old Testament covenant resulted in punishment without mercy, of how much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God in the New Testament? So, God takes his covenant seriously. Covenant equals contract, compact of promises, terms, threats of how persons will relate to each other. Covenant equals promises by one to another, like God to us, with or without conditions. Covenant rules for religious worship of God by different people at different times. God chose these terms to convey the certainty of His purpose for us in our worship. Did you see the verses that I gave you yesterday at the top of the preparatory? That even if it's a man's covenant once it's confirmed, it cannot be disannulled? And you believe that because of, your, because of the typical, traditional, and I will tell you where it comes from, Catholic Church marriage vows, when you say, till death do us part. So you're saying it can't be annulled. I'm making a commitment to you today that stands for as long as I'm alive. And you're making that toward me. And so God chose these terms. And in the verses I gave you from Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 15, he says, I'm speaking like men about men's covenants, but even if it's just a man's covenant, once it's confirmed, it cannot be disannulled. And God's covenants are a whole lot more binding than ours because of the two immutable things that are true of Him that are not true of us at all. Look at Esther. Can you find the book of Esther? There before Job... The book of Esther, I want to sh- just remind you of some Bible language that should get you excited. It does me. This is a little bit, off, little bit off track, but we're dealing with what is a covenant? What does the word mean? And it's a contract. It's an agreement. It's a formal agreement. It's a formal compact that's going to govern how one party's going to relate to another party. What's expected? What benefits are going to be conveyed? Threats of what punishments will be conveyed if necessary? Throughout the Bible, some government policies are left to us in short phraseology that their legislation was inviolate. And so when I read it, I think, I like that. But beyond I like that, God's is greater. Because theirs was overthrown. Like we read about Babylon's being overthrown. Let me show you a couple of these. One nineteen of Esther. Esther 19, If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him. That would be a, co- a covenant. And let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes that it be not altered. Because once it's written among, among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, it was not altered that Vashti come no, before, come no more before King Ahasuerus. Chapter, uh, that's a long one. Chapter 8, chapter 3 has several verses about it. Chapter 8 and verse 5. Esther's asking the king for a favor. Esther 8, 5, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the things seem right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews which are in all the king's provinces. And then, verse 8 write ye also for the Jews as it liketh you in the king's name and seal it with the king's ring, for the writing which is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring may no man reverse. And so you read that and you say, I like the authority, the solemnity, and the certainty of the Persian government. Right. Our government is greater. Our government is much greater. That by two immutable things, as you know, the book of Esther is the first one that I, the first ones that I could have read you were overturned by the latter ones, but nothing's ever overturned in heaven where God has written down His covenant for us. Right. And there's a book of the everlasting covenant, the books of, and the names of the book of life are there with it as well as the beneficiaries of it. And there's a whole lot of these in the Bible from Daniel and Isaiah and so forth. And you know, even Pilate's ring to seal the tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. Boom! The Jews begged for that because they knew that that wax mark on that tomb was not going to be altered. People would be terrified of touching the Roman government and their authority. But we have the authority of heaven, and we have the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have his shed blood, and His sprinkling of blood in heaven that has put all this into force. The death of the testator has occurred, which is Almighty God through the person of the incarnate, Lord Jesus Christ, and has put it in force. And it cannot be altered, it cannot be reversed, it cannot be disannulled. Greater than any covenant, anywhere, at any time, by anyone. And yet people will put their trust in constitutions, in marital covenants, in other contractual agreements, which are broken every single day of time, but ours is never broken. And on that we can rest. The Everlasting Covenant. I have 12 points that deserve 12 sermons. Let's kick a few of them out of the way. The Everlasting Covenant. Some theologians call it the Covenant of Grace. The only reason I would even mention that to you and trouble your minds with it if you did any reading and you run into the words, the Covenant of Grace. The Covenant of Grace is not the New Testament. The covenant of grace is the underlying everlasting covenant from the eternal counsels of God all the way into eternity. I choose the words everlasting covenant, not the covenant of grace because I can't find the words the covenant of grace in the New Testament, but I can find the words the everlasting covenant. Because in Hebrews chapter 13, now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. David saying on his deathbed, although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. Now I will tell you right now so that you will not think that I am mistaken that that is primarily the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 23 and verse 5. That's primarily the Davidic covenant because he is speaking of a perfect ruler and that in his house there were no perfect rulers and yet there was going to be one that would come and it saved his house. His reign. But but that Davidic covenant is just one part of the everlasting covenant. So we're still covered. And, and we have Paul in Hebrews 13:20. And we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world for that blood yeah. to be shed for us. So that Peter would summarize it this way: In 1 Peter 1:2, 1, he'd try to pull some facts together: Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay, there's the Godhead at work for us, and it involves election, and we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, so we call it the everlasting covenant. God purposed and promised eternal life before the world began. Flip to the right in your Bibles, all the way to the little book of Titus, chapter 1 and verse 2. We've only got a few more minutes before break. I know, brother. I wanted to say that to Titus. The word was no. I wanted him to keep going. Titus chapter 1, verse 2, "...in hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began." That is what the elect are looking for, as verse 1 tells us, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness, the true doctrine of God, the true religion of the true God, involves a hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie, there it's mentioned again, one of the immutable things about Him, promised before the world began. Eternal life was promised before the world began. Well, before the world began, who was there? You weren't there to hear it. I wasn't there to hear it. Jesus wasn't there to hear it. But by covenant He was there, the Word would become flesh in time. By covenant He was there, and by covenant we were there, and our names were written down before our parents, before there were any parents, who have saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ before the world began. Neither we nor Christ were there in person, in reality, in the flesh, but we were there by covenant. It's called the everlasting covenant. And I share it with you. And so the first question is, what is it? What is it? It is God's holy design, His holy assignment of duties, His preparation and guarantee to save all the elect. There wasn't even sin yet. Well, once you get started with covenant theology, it kind of takes care of Arminianism. Right. It kind of really takes care of it. It's God's holy design. He planned it. His holy assignment of who would do what. His holy preparation. Did you know that heaven has been prepared from the foundation of the world? He didn't all of a sudden feel sorry for somebody singing when we all get to heaven and decide, I need to build them someplace to go to. since No, 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 no. It's part of the eternal covenant and the guarantee of his son to save all the elect. It is the holy work of salva- It is the whole work. It is the whole work of salvation from the contrivance of it to the final consummation of it, the everlasting covenant. It is God's counsel or determinate counsel for all things. Look at Psalm 33. Psalm 33, and we quit because of the time. Psalm 33, it is not because of the material. I'm not trying to save material. <laughs> psalm I, some of these verses. For those of you that read Psalm 25 carefully last night, I commend and I commend you. Psalm 25 is a special psalm where the psalmist says, Lord. Teach me several times. Show me, guide me, lead me. Show me your secret and show me your covenant. You can have a closer relationship with God. Will you pray for it? Will you seek it? That you will know his covenant better and that you'll be more assured of it? Remember the height and depth and length and breadth of Christ's love that passes knowledge So that we can know how much Christ loved us. And it passes knowledge. And it's something we have to seek and pray for. And the Holy Spirit does it. And the Holy Spirit can do this one as well from Psalm 25. But we're in Psalm 33. I want you looking for the covenants every verse you read. Psalm 33 and verse 11. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever. The thoughts of his heart to all generations. That is where the everlasting covenant began and that is where the everlasting covenant comes from, and that makes the everlasting covenant absolutely certain. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever. Who doeth everything according to the counsel of his own will. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Please stand with me. Holy Father, We fall before Thee mentally, we fall before Thee spiritually, and ask Thee to bless us by Your Spirit for our spirits, and Your Word for our spirits and our minds. Show us these things, convince us of them, and quicken us according to them, that we might see their glory, and thus give Thee the dedicated and committed lives that we should. Thank you for the food, the little bit of food that we're going to partake of. Sanctify it and our eating of it and us around it. In Jesus' name, we thank thee and commit ourselves. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. We will resume at 11 o'clock.